Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today we're discussing an annotated guide to tactics, Carl von Clausewitz's theory of the combat. My guest today is Olivia Girard, the editor of the book. Ms. Girard served as an officer in the United States Marine Corps from 2014 to 2020. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and a Master of Arts in War Studies from King's College, London. She's currently attending the Graduate Institute at St. John's College and tweets at at TN Tactics. Ms. Girard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm excited uh, to be able to join and continue to move forward with the, the Marine Corps, even from uh, outside active duty. Well, we're delighted to have you here. We're going to get into the book and have a good discussion of that. But before we do, give our listeners some some insight into what brought you to the Guide to Tactics or the Theory of the Combat. How did you find what is clearly a lesser known uh, of Klaus works? So what's interesting about this is I think it kind of goes to my educational career prior to fully being involved with the Marine Corps. And I had the, the opportunity after graduating college to go to King's College to, to study um, in their war studies department. And I took a, a class on Clausewitz. And what's interesting is that the professor there, Jan Honig, recommended that we read the Graham translation, which is not the common translation that is used in PME institutions or even just uh, college and universities in, in both America as well as the world. Uh, Howard and Parade translation is the, right. the kind of preeminent translation. And so, you know, I had access to the, the Graham translation and there's an appendices in the back. And so finally, I had kind of been going back down uh, my Clausewitzian rabbit holes I, I tend to do from time to time and realized I, I hadn't actually read the appendices. And so when I did, I, I found um, this text and I was like, wow, it's a lot more relevant than I had thought it would be, uh, especially because it pertains to tactics. I think that there's a, a common sense that it's going to be prescriptive and very much evocative of the Napoleonic era. era and I was pleasantly surprised to find out that it wasn't. And so then it was a question of why does no one know about this? Well, great. And so why is it you think that no one knows about it? So what's interesting about that is I, it, it actually comes down to quirks of literary history, I think, um, and that this became kind of part of my project um, was both like, what does the text say? What, what is important about it? But really, why do scholars not know about it? Um, why? Because, uh, you know, as soon as I had finished reading it, I, of course, went to Google and Google Scholar to be, you know, looking up to see whether or not it was cited. I went into a bunch of, you know, kind of common text secondary sources on Clausewitz and it, it just wasn't there. And so there's a really interesting uh, trajectory of the English translations of, of Clausewitz. So it's, you know, I'm going to put super nerd hat on right now. But the first translation, complete translation of Clausewitz in English was 1873 by J.J. Uh, Graham. Apparently, according to Christopher Basford, it has no connection, direct connection to the Franco-Prussian War. I find that hard to believe. Perhaps someone didn't explicitly say that I decided to do this translation because of the Franco-Prussian War, but I imagine at that time was kind of a reinvigoration of that. But that translation didn't do very well. And it was reinvigorated in 1909 by Maud. And Colonel Maud kind of re-promoted it, and it did actually very well. That was the, the standard version of the English translation of Clausewitz. 
1943, uh, O.J. Joles uh, did another translation at the University of Chicago during World War II. Uh, that translation, I think, is very similar to the Graham translation. It's a little bit more readable in some areas. What happened is in 1952, Werner Hallweg, who is a, a German scholar, uh, identified that the conventional text of On War or Vom Krieg uh, that was used had actually been modified. So if we go back to the, the just kind of the German history, uh, Clausewitz dies in 1831. His wife starts publishing uh, what are 10 editions of um, Vom Krieg from 1832 until 1837. I believe it's 1852, her brother actually intervened into the text uh, to make a few modifications uh, to try and have the military have more influence in the cabinet. And that textual augmentation was identified in 1952. Hmm. And so the technically the Graham translation and the Joel's translation were based off of a essentially corrupted text. The actual textual change is actually very small. So if you look at the whole text, it, it doesn't kind of negate what Clausewitz is saying because his whole idea of the military being subordinate to politics reads true whether whichever translation you're reading. But the Howard and Parade translation, what was so key about it is that it was after the 1952 version of um, kind of the original, original Vom Krieg text. Uh, but when they did that, they were unable to translate all of what is in the first three books, the first three volumes, I should say. So Vom Krieg, when it was published, was split up into three different books just from size-wise. Um, and so in the third one, you have the ends, basically book seven, book eight, and then you have the appendices. When Howard and Prey translated, they included some notes, which a lot of the other translations don't have. So the, the foreword by Marie, as well as uh, some notes as to kind of to what extent Clausewitz thinks that his work is complete, but the the appendices disappeared. And so it really is just almost like a sense of access that that this text was just not included in terms of uh, accessibility. So that I think that's a large reason why the Guide to Tactics wasn't known. I think a lesser or another aspect of this is absolutely because it's about tactics. And that's not something that we focus on as much as I think we should, not in the sense of wanting to micromanage, but theories of tactics is not something that we commonly think about. And so what makes this work important to Marines? Because I would assume as well that if we're talking about tactical action or a theory of tactics, that it would be heavily Napoleonic and maybe maybe not as relevant to contemporary war fighters, particularly not as we're looking to a future fight that we expect to be somewhat different. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, and what's interesting uh, in terms of the scholars that I was able to see who had at least some sort of small reference to this, the French were actually further along in uh, identifying this as an important work. So for instance, Raymond Arone saw that it was uh, methodologically and epistemologically consistent with on war. And what that means is it was abstract. And that I think is the the key part of why this is a valuable text is because Clausewitz was looking at what is attack and defense in its most abstract sense. And that's something we can think about now. That's a good question to be asking about with, in particular, cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. And so 
that I think is why it's it's so relevant is because he wasn't looking at well what makes a cavalry charge and attack versus uh, a defense, but looking at what what makes those concepts itself work. Similarly, his concepts between close combat and fire combat, um, which when he does give examples, he runs into cut and thrust weapons versus kind of more artillery, but that's not how he actually defines it. He defines it based on a kind of knowledge and expectation of the result. And so if you take that of close combat is certainty, more like essentially you're certain, then what an infantry unit is doing is definitely close combat in terms of closing with and destroying the enemy by fire or maneuver. Whereas fires he talks about is more or less probable. And so if you if you take that, then actually some of our, what we would traditionally call fires, for instance, close air support, can often come closer to close combat, depending on the types of tactical precision we have. And that actually looking at his concept of fires is actually makes thinking about information and cyber, I think, much more effective because we're wrestling with the fact that a lot of those technologies are more or less probable. We, we can't have the same types of certainty to the result. And so being able to use those uh, conceptual concepts, I think, is, is what is really helpful. And there's, there's plenty more within the, the text itself that I think Marines can work through. And that's a large reason for the impetus of wanting to get it out there is it's, it's a filter to ask questions about the future. Well, and it's interesting to me, and this could be an association that I have in my own head, but when I think of tactics, I think of training. And when I think of strategy and, and the operational level of war, I think more of education. But the way that you're talking about tactics in the context of this particular book, it is more of a theoretical, conceptual approach to tactics as a field, as a, as a series of concepts which lends itself more to education. So it is really interesting, for me at least, to think about how we might take this question of tactics out of a what is traditionally a training mindset and put it into more of an educational focus or with more of an educational approach. No, and I, I absolutely agree with that because if we think of how quickly a lot of the technologies we have that are training, we can't actually keep up the traditional training and education doctrine cycle of here's what we need to teach people, here's we vetted it, here's we made sure that the the blocks that need to be checked we've validated and we're doing that, we're in the same kind of cycle. And so the ways to do that is one, you could try and predict all of the things that you need to learn, or you could take a step back and look at what are the fundamental underlying mm -hmm. elements of what we're doing so that we're able to better encounter uh, whatever changes happen. You know, I think that What's helpful in, in a lot of the distinctions that he makes is, you know, we're, we're not, you know, I think of bio warfare and, uh, you know, nanotechnologies is, is much more kind of the, the future. That's the scary future fight for me. I think that what he writes about provides a way to, to look through what that kind of competition and combat might look like in a very, you know, certainly an abstract way, but that it provides some sort of foundation without having to speculate as to whether or not we're fighting in Gattaca land. So let's talk about, uh, you had mentioned that on uh, the guide to tactics is consistent with on war, but how do these two documents speak to one another? Uh, you talk in the first chapter 
of the work that it's important to have a balanced understanding of them. What does that balanced understanding look like? Particularly because so many, at least officers, are up to their eyeballs in on war and have never even heard of, of the guide to tactics before. So, you know, perhaps the, the benefit for all of those is I think that what officers need to, or officers and staff and CEOs, or, or really anyone needs to know about on war, as much as I would like to be able to say that everyone should spend tens of time reading <laughs> on war, I have come to the conclusion that that's not uh, the best use of everyone's time, but is, is understanding that war is ultimately responsible or responding to uh, the political dynamics. And it is a part of not something separate from all elements of politics, be it uh, just kind of the way that states interact, be it the polity that's involved, or be it the explicit policy that's that's being uh, created. That I think you can get actually fairly quickly. Um, and that's one of, I think, the, the big things to get from On War. And so what Guide to Tactics does is it kind of provides, I, I would call it like a hyperlink, because combat is, is absolutely what Clausewitz is talking about in On War, and talking about either possible combats or actual combats. And this is basically his explanation of what that is and what that looks like. And what's interesting, um, and I think one of the benefits of guided tactics, similarly, I would like to say that all Marines should read all of it, but at least there's a, a bluff uh, with guided tactics that if you, if you really read the first 10 propositions out of 604, <laughs> you actually get a good, a good sense of, of what's going on because he talks about what is the object of combat and then how do you have victory? And what's interesting, and this is where it, I think, directly links into MCDP1, is six of the seven are moral. And, and by moral, I mean uh, psychological, uh, fearing the enemy, believing something about the enemy. Um, only one of them is actually destroying anything. Everything else is, I've lost my position, I've lost something else. And that, I think, is absolutely consistent with MCDP1. And so I think that that's what gives it a lot more powers because it, it translates into things that I think we can understand better in terms of like, oh, if someone's disposition got, got shifted, they now don't have the same fields of fire, they don't have the same kind of proximity to their reinforcements, that that's actually going to have a tangible, obviously, effect on what they can physically do, but also that's going to disrupt their internal communication, that's going to disrupt their potential for having the same kind of courage to, to act in the in a way that uh, might be able to make up for some of those other deficiencies. Um, and so I think it just brings a, a deeper and kind of a, a larger sense of reconfirming what MCDP1 is saying. So this is an interesting point. So the this piece is certainly theoretical. It isn't doctrine, but is consistent with doctrine. It sounds like there's no need to crack open MCDP-1 or any of the other doctrinal pubs for significant rewrite on the basis of, of what you've presented here, what you've translated here. Is that fair? Or are there ways in which these insights could shape, alter, tweak our doctrine moving forward? I think that's a question that I don't necessarily, I haven't done a, a crosswalk to like completely mm -hmm. go through and, and be able to say, um, did Clausewitz say anything that, that doesn't hold? But I, I think that this is, you know, what the goal of putting out this um, Graham translation of the, the Guide to Tactics and, and making it accessible is that 
that's what we should be doing. That's the intellectual curiosity and that's the, the intellectual skills to develop in the process of looking at it is, is going, well, MCDP one says, you know, wanting to, you know, overwhelm the adversary. Clausewitz says, here are seven ways or six ways to do that. Is he missing any? Have any new ones developed in the process of having access to the air domain, having access to uh, a lot of these new kind of technically mediated spheres? Does that challenge anything? Or does it actually make some of those um, things that he identified more potent in the sense of he might have been like, well, this exists, but we don't really think that this is a big thing. And and now we actually can take advantage of it. So it's more challenging Marines to look through and, and see what makes sense based on today and also uh, what we imagine the futures to look like. So there is a, a running joke, I'm sure across PME, but certainly here at Marine Corps University, that Clausewitz on war uh, is dense, is not light reading, and can be somewhat inscrutable. Is the same true for the Guide to Tactics? Is it a more accessible document for, say, junior Marines or lieutenants to read and digest on their own without the the benefit of having a, a PhD with a specific background in military history and military theory? Absolutely. I think that's uh, one of the, the best parts of, of Guide to Tactics is because it's, it's written formally different in the sense of he breaks it up into not quite aphorisms, but small little digestible comments that are, you know, at most a paragraph long. Um, so it's, it's one, it's literally shorter, which is just a benefit, but you can pause on one. So, you know, if you wanted to, you could do one a day um, and your three year tour, you finish this in, you know, two years and then you have one year to, to ruminate on it after having read it. And that's, you know, that, that's a sentence a day, pretty much. So I, I think that, but also he uses a few thought experiments, but he uses fewer of them. There's also less historical examples involved in this. And so it's much more straight to the point in terms of the defense is this, the attack is this. Uh, I think the most difficult portion of it, and it's part of the annotations was to kind of highlight this to, mm -hmm. to readers so that they, you know, kind of didn't get bogged down, is when he gets a little bit more specific of some of the kind of concentric attack, uh, which is not, and I, I won't say that this is completely Napoleonic because there's a reasoning behind the way that he's looking at this in terms of a, a more abstract number sense of it, of wanting to converge versus wanting to disperse, which I think is, is things that we can certainly think about, especially if you start thinking about DDoS attacks or swarming, like those, those same kind of uh, fundamental elements still pertain. But I think that's probably the most challenging bit. But we highlight that um, in the text. And so, you know, that's something that you could, you know, use white space to work with Marines and, and think through it and be like, does this still work? Is it only work in certain domains? Or, you know, is this something that, that actually is a little antiquated? But do we have a, a way to think about it, given that we now have access to, to more dimensions than the two dimensions that he was generally thinking on. Well, yeah, and uh, I am not here to tell you what to do or offer career advice or task you, but I could then see the way you're describing it now, a follow-on publication that is essentially 
hip pocket PMEs based on each of the different points, right? So that a lieutenant or a gunny could, while out PTing with the team or through whatever, whatever point when everyone's sitting down eating chow, have a discussion about one of these concepts uh, and how that might tease out for a particular exercise they're preparing for, maybe they're in the middle of. So I could see some real value there. Because it is a little more digestible, you can take it in more discrete chunks. Uh, and for our listeners who haven't seen it, let me pause and say now this book uh, has come out through Marine Corps University Press. It is available in hard copy as of last week, I think. Um, so if you're interested in getting your own copy, you can always get it uh, free of charge. Either download it from the Marine Corps University Press website or there's a, a form you can fill out on the website if you'd like a hard copy. But you'll see when you read it. That one side of the page, left-hand side of the page, has the text itself translated in English, and then the right-hand side of the page are the annotations, so the explication of different concepts or how things might have evolved since the historical period in which the document was written. So it's a very easy, um, even for someone who is not a military theorist like myself, uh, very easy to follow and to, to understand how the argumentation is developing as you go through. Well, and, and one of the things that we wanted to make sure uh, is that there's actually a limited number of annotations. This mm -hmm. is not like some Norton critical edition where every single thing is explained. It's kind of the big topics are explained, some kind of thought experiments are proposed, and then there's a lot of white space. Draw, you know, field diagrams, like bring it to a war game and 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 think through the the ideas. That's That's the value of it. You know, it's we don't need to replicate what Clausewitz is doing. We just need to use it as a kind of a catalyst to, to think through kind of the changing character of warfare. So what surprised you as you worked on this project? Honestly, the first thing was that no one, no one knew about it. Like I, I, you know, there's still a part of me of like, how is it that I was the one who identified that we weren't talking about? There's still, I, I'm a little bit still shocked about that. So that, that's probably the, the largest thing. I would say the other is the section, I think it's like 238, when he talks about the magnitude and the certainty of the results and the, the relationship between those. Because one, he defines risk, which I think is fascinating, because he defines risk based on something uncertain in the future, which is a very expansive definition of risk, and mm -hmm. he even acknowledges it. And this whole reading from a very kind of knowledge-based or epistemological view, I actually was very much persuaded by Anders Egbert Pedersen's Empire of Chance in talking about how to basically conceive of the world and how do you basically transmit knowledge, which is education. <laughs> like that's, that's really all this is. And so there's a very kind of pedagogical view. One, you can have a pedagogical view of on war. John Sumita does that. Absolutely. But I, I think that when you're looking at risk and looking at kind of what you do or don't know about something as kind of like that's your barometer of risk, I think that's it's really fascinating. Um, I don't know if I wholly agree with that, I, you know, in terms of whether or not it's just too expansive, especially in today's world to operate with. But I think it's it's really fascinating, um, especially when it's coupled in with his idea that the bigger result that you're going to get from your combat, uh, you need to have more risk. A really big win requires really big risk. Um, so bet big, win big. I don't know if that's still true, but it's something that I'm wrestling with right now because I think a lot of our institution, not just the Marine Corps, but I think the Department of Defense writ large has tried to minimize 
the amount of uncertainty that we have. And so whether or not we've minimized the, the potential of actually getting a large result, which if that's the case, then um, in certain types of conflict, do we not have we basically precluded the possibility of winning um, in a larger sense because uh, we're only doing small wins that would accumulate over time, but that's never going to, to tip the scale. Obviously, doing that, it means that we've minimized the bet big, lose big, um, which is, you know, a good thing. But but it's something that I'm, I'm wrestling with kind of his ideas. And so, uh, you know, this is the whole point of what he brings up is, is not, nece not necessarily to say that he defined it correctly, but he did it in a really interesting way that I think is provocative and helpful for thinking about the competition that we're currently in and potential future conflicts. That's really interesting. So we're going to shift gears. It's our last question we ask everyone. Uh, and I'll be interested to, to hear your answer, particularly given your current studies. But what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Doesn't have to be at all related to Clausewitz. <laughs> but it could be. I will I will do a quick plug for Clausewitz. I am reading his On Small Wars, which actually is much more doctrine. It's much more specific of you need six, six personnel to go um, out on this patrol, most likely, um, unless you're in the woods or something, and then you need, you know, some other combination. But he actually has some really interesting, uh, very consistent thoughts with, with how... Um, commander's intent and, and communication functions. So, that, so that's been interesting. But the book that I finished a little while ago, but I'm still thinking about, um, is actually How Buildings Learn uh, by Stuart Brand. And what's interesting about this is I would say that it's the best book on strategy that's not about strategy. Um, and it's, it's particularly, I think, helpful for thinking about force design and force structure. Because what he, uh, Stuart Brand did and I believe it came out in the early 90s, is he looked at old pictures of buildings going back to, you know, even the 1800s, and then what the buildings looked like in the future, and kind of giving a story and an account of how those changes happened. And what I think is particularly helpful, or kind of why I think it pertains to force design and force structure, is that it's spatially determined, it's very territorial, but it's also absolutely responsive to interactions with the object itself, as well as interactions with the community. And it also takes a long time to change, which I think is, is one of the really beneficial aspects. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of parallels. I'd like to, to dig more into to that, which is why I keep thinking about it. But I there's pictures in it too, so <laughs> uh, hopefully make some people happy. Well, great. Ms. Gerard, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at, at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Padgia Howell, and our show manager, Captain Michael Goff. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded podcast of Marine Corps University.